Father, we thank you that you have indeed in Christ satisfied the deepest longings of our souls. We pray that you will help us to draw closer to you, through your word, your Holy Spirit. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Do you ever read the stories of the great movements of God in history? And say to yourself, I wish that would happen to us. Do you ever hear things of, of what God is doing in other places of the world? Miraculous events, lives changed unbelievably. And say to yourself, I I wish that would happen to us. You have friends who have experienced something of God in their life that you haven't yet experienced yourself. And in those quiet moments, You say to yourself, I wish that would happen to me. Hopefully, there's a sense in which all of us are saying that. There's a sense in which all of us are yearning for that kind of movement of God's spirit in us as individuals and in us as people thinking back to the things that God has done in this place and in other places of this country and other places of the world, looking back and thinking about where we are now and yearning, desiring for God to do something like that in us. I would hope and wish and pray that that would be our desire. And when it is, our most natural response is to say, all right, what can we do to make that happen? Right? We study the things that have happened in the past and we find some principles and we declare if we could just do those things, we'd have that same stuff happen to us that happened to them. But the reality is, and the people in those movements would be the first to tell you, the reality is what happened in those places at that time happened only because God did it. Not because people found some magic principles. Not because people were able to to crack the magic revival nut. But because God moved. 
Now, I think they would be the first to tell us as well that there was something in them going on that prepared them for the movement of God. And the reality is, if we want something like that to happen among us, all we can do is prepare ourselves. And there's nothing more significant, nothing more important, maybe nothing else we can really do to prepare ourselves for the movement of God among us than to pray. It's for this reason that over the course of the next couple of months, we are going to spend a lot of time thinking and talking and putting into our minds prayer. It's going to culminate in November with a church-wide three-week prayer event, and you'll be hearing more about that as the weeks progress. But on Sunday mornings, as we come together for worship, we're going to be thinking about the various facets and dimensions of prayer. And today I want us to begin in this passage from Luke's gospel that we read just a few moments ago. It's always intrigued me that of all, in all the gospels, the only thing we have recorded that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them is to pray. They watched Jesus do some pretty amazing things. But the Gospels don't record the disciples saying, Jesus, Lord, teach us to do miracles. And they listen to some powerful sermons from the mouth of Jesus. But we don't have recorded them saying, Lord, teach us how to hold a crowd and, and, and to preach like that. And they, they watch as Jesus answers the, the questions and the riddles of the religious leaders with courage and truth and love. But we don't have recorded in the Gospels them saying, Lord, teach us how to deal with the Pharisees. The only thing the Gospels tell us that they ask Jesus to teach them is to pray. And I don't think that's inconsequential. Now, they may have asked him about other things to teach them, but this is all the Gospels tell us. Lord, teach us to pray. And it says something about the centrality of prayer in our lives. It's not, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that this chapter begins, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. There's something about the life of Jesus that they don't have and they want. Something about Jesus that's different than them. And somehow they have connected that to Jesus' prayer life. And when Jesus gets done praying, whether they observed him that day or other days, or they'd been talking about this, and one of them was the spokesperson. But that day, after Jesus finished praying, they say to him, Lord, Teach us to pray like that. Teach us to pray. It implies to us that prayer is something we learn. I think we tend to think of prayer as just sort of something that comes out of us, springs out of us. And sometimes it does. But there is an element of prayer that we learn that in which we are nurtured 
And we develop and we grow in our ability to pray and our understanding of prayer. And Jesus' response to them is to give to them what we recited earlier and what we call the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, in many ways, is a, is a concise synopsis of all that we think about when we pray or that we should think about. It talks about how we are to view God and it talks about how we are to, to live for God in this world as members of His kingdom. This, the prayer speaks to us of, of our daily needs and of our relationships with each other. And the prayer speaks to us the reality of temptation in our lives and God's power to help us handle that. And that ultimately everything we do in life is about giving God glory. And the prayer teaches us about the nature and the character of God. In fact, I would argue that the most important element of what Jesus teaches the disciples about prayer is in the opening short phrase in what we say, our Father who art in heaven. In what Matthew records, our Father in heaven. What Luke says, simply, Father. And I'm convinced that until we have a grasp of our God as Father, we will never be the people of prayer that we want to be and that God wants us to be. This image of God as Father is, is woven throughout the pages of Scripture and the history of the church. You, you noticed when we recited the Apostles' Creed, it begins, I believe in God the Father. And my question is, do we? Do we really believe in God the Father as we see him revealed to us in the pages of his word? The significance of this is that if, if we do not believe in God as Father, it changes the way we pray. It affects our ability to pray because prayer is wrapped up in our understanding and our view of God. If we believe that God is Father as scriptures tell us, then we begin to understand that our Father in heaven delights in doing good for us. He loves to do good for us. It's important to believe that because if we believe that God truly delights in doing good for us, then we no longer have to feel like we need to manipulate God to get what we want. In the ancient world of the Israelites, all the peoples around them, their view of, God, of their gods was pretty similar to each other. Different than Israel, but all the rest of them had pretty much the same view of their gods. They, were, they did not care about human beings. They were passionless, impersonal, really didn't care about the people. And so if that's the view of God, the only way you can get that kind of a God to do something good for you is if you beg them, trick them, manipulate them, or pester them long enough till they finally say, fine, here you go, take it. And that mindset has crept into our human nature about our God. If you don't believe that God loves to delight in giving good to you, then we're continually 
thinking, how can I convince God to do good for me? And we manipulate God, we make promises to God, we try to trick God. We do all these things so we can get what we want because inherently we believe God really doesn't want to give good things to us. And you can begin to see how our mindset of God warps and skews our ability to pray. And sometimes our warped view of God is the result of negative experiences. Sometimes it's because of things that we've been taught falsely. Sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, it's because of what we witnessed in our own parents. Now, even the best of parents are human and fallible. Don't ask my children about that, but I can tell you it's probably true. It's the way it is. Human beings are fallible. And the best of parents make mistakes. They make promises that we don't end up keeping. We make plans and and fail to follow through. We don't react the way we should. And all of that together has a bearing when we start talking about God as Father. Now, for some people, the word Father is so heinous that it sends chills up and down their spine. But even for all of us, there is a certain amount of skewing about understanding God as Father who loves and delights in doing good for us. And Jesus begins this prayer saying, Our Father, because he wants us to understand a new image of God, perspective of God that is different than the one which we wrestle with. And so he says, Our Father in heaven, he is different than the fathers you might see on this earth. He's different than what you might typically think. He is holy and loving. He is not a father we have to trick or cajole or pester in order to get anything good from him. He loves to give good to us. He delights in giving good to us. It brings joy to him to give good things to us. That's why Jesus says, okay, which of you, if if your child asks for a stone, are going to give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, are going to give him a scorpion? And if you know how to give good gifts to children and you're evil, how much more your loving, perfect, heavenly Father wants to give good things to you. I love the way the message translates verse 10. Don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This is not a cat and mouse hide and seek game we're in. Why do we bargain with God? Because we aren't quite sure he wants to do good for us. Why do we play games with God? Because we aren't quite sure that he really wants to do good for us. And if you don't believe that God is good, then your only choice is to do everything in your power to convince God to do good. And so our prayers become nothing more than attempts to cajole God into doing something loving for us. And Jesus says, you don't have that kind of father. You don't need to pray that way. But it's not just about manipulating God. If if we really understand and believe that God delights in doing good for us, it, it opens us up to have so much more freedom about our prayers and how we pray. 
Instead of prayer as an attempt to convince God that he should do something for us or to convince God that we're good enough and we deserve him to do something for us, when we're praying to a loving Heavenly Father, we come to him in complete honesty and helplessness and say, God, I need you. I need you. This parable that Jesus tells about the friend who has a a need for bread, and so he goes to his neighbor, is an interesting illumination of the freedom of prayer and the helplessness of prayer. He goes to his friend, he says, I need bread, and the guy says, get away from me. We're all in bed. I'm not getting up and giving you bread. It's not happening. And Jesus looks at the crowd who's listening to the story, and he says, so what do you think is going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. He's going to get up and give him bread because the guy's going to keep pounding on his door. And why does the guy feel free and comfortable to pound on his door? Because he has a need that he knows only this friend can solve. A lot of translations don't use the word because it's because of his boldness or some because of its persistence. But I, I've, I believe that underlying that, the idea of those words is the idea of helplessness. He understands he has a person who, at his house who needs bread and he is helpless to give him bread. So he will do anything in his power to get bread for his friend. He will be bold to continue to knock. He will be persistent to continue to knock. Why? Because he's completely helpless and he's not afraid for anybody to know that. He'll wake up the whole neighborhood if he has to because he has a need he's helpless to solve. But those people can solve it. And Jesus again says, if that's how you are with each other, how much more your Father in heaven? How much more your Father in heaven who is always ready to give you what you need. The problem is not that, you, that he doesn't want to give it. The problem is you don't want to admit that you have the need. But admitting the need is easy to do when you know you're praying to a father who loves you. If you have children, think about them for a moment. Or if you don't have children, think about a brother or sister or a niece or a nephew or It's a child you care about. If they had a need and they came to you and and, and what they said to you was pleading, cajoling, trying to trick you, manipulate you, trying to get you to believe that they really had a need and would you please, please, please help me, please, please, please. I know you probably don't want to, but could you help me? After a while, you'd get offended by that, wouldn't you? And you realize they don't think I really want to help them. How much more, Father in heaven? There's nothing wrong with being helpless before God. In fact, it opens so many doors for God to meet our needs if we'll just acknowledge it. But there's another side to that freedom. It's not just being helpless. It's having the freedom to ask God of anything and everything that we want and desire. A little child is not afraid to ask their parents for what it is, for whatever they want. Because they don't believe that, that those things are, the parents are going to say, well, that's unimportant. Loving parents don't do that. We are not dualists. We do not believe that, that 
that God is concerned and interested in our spirits and not matter. Our physical lives. God's concerned about all of us. We are whole beings that God's created whole. And the spiritual and the material are interwoven in us and in our world. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus says it is, a, it is an act of deep spirituality when you give a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty or bread to those who are hungry, clothes to those who are naked or you go visit people in prison. I think that's why Jesus said it's an act of great spirituality when a soldier forces you to go a mile carrying his stuff and you go too. Or someone sues you for your coat and you give him your shirt. Our loving Heavenly Father cares about everything in our lives. And I think it hurts him when we hold back from asking for what we want and desire. Because at the heart of that is a sense of, well, I'm not sure God really cares about that. This came home to me so clearly a few years ago. We were on a family vacation in... um, in the Midwest, we had, we had gone to visit a few colleges for John. And um, because we were near Indiana, I decided that we would, uh, let's, let's take a trip to I'd show my family where I grew up. If you ask them, I'm sure it was the favorite, their favorite vacation we've ever taken as a family. Go follow the trek of dad's life. How great, wonderful. To make it a little more palatable... We, I told them, well, how about this? When we get through going through those places in my history, we'll drive up to Bloomington and we'll visit Indiana University. Well, we're all Indiana basketball fans, so that sounded like a really fun thing to do. I'd never been, I'd only been to Bloomington once in my life, and that was a five-year-old going to visit a doctor specialist there for my throat I was having trouble with. So we're pretty excited, and we drive in, and we drove around campus, and we went to Assembly Hall, and we walked onto the floor, and, you know, we played fake basketball because there weren't any balls around, and we sat on the seats that the players sit on, and it was just a lot of fun. We took pictures. We went to the store. We bought a few things to remember the trip, and we went upstairs, and we were just about to leave the lobby when in the door walked two of Indiana's players, George Leach, A.J. Moyer. We were like, whoa. And they walked by us. We said hi, and I stopped them and said, hey, can we get some pictures? They're like, sure, no problem. So we have pictures of them. And we talked a few minutes, and then we left, and we walked to the car, barely touching the ground as we went. It was exciting, you know? And on the way to the car, I I said to the guys, you know, this is interesting, because before we left, I prayed that God would let something really special happen on this trip. And one of them said to me, do you think God really cares about that kind of stuff? I understood the question because I had been asking it myself. And I said, I, I do. Because that's a moment that brought us great joy. And I think God loves to bring joy to his children. I don't think it was a coincidence that after praying about that for a number of weeks, 
and us leaving early that morning and making the trip up there and stopping at various places along the way and getting into town and driving around and getting lost and getting to the place and going to the store and coming out of the lobby at just the same moment that they were walking in. I think that was a gift of God. And I believe God loves it when we give to him, present to him the desires of our hearts. Because he loves to give good things to his children. Now I know that we sort of step back and say, well, yeah, they become selfish. And sure it can. But that's not so much our problem. Our problem is we don't think it's important to God. And it is. In fact, I think it's offensive to God for us to say that's not important to him when it's important to us. He's our loving Heavenly Father. He loves to pour out good gifts to us. Does he always give us our heart's desire? No. Sometimes it's not best for us. Sometimes the timing isn't right for giving it to us. Sometimes it's because we're so enamored with the temporal and he's thinking about the eternal. And often it's because we're so focused on what we think is good while our Heavenly Father is focused on what he knows is best. But it's not because God doesn't want to give us good things. He delights in giving us good things. And more than anything else, what God loves to pour out upon us is himself. When you come to the end of this this section of Scripture, in verse 13... Jesus says, which of you, if your son asks for a fish, you give him a snake, or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will your Father in heaven give himself to you? The greatest thing about our Father in heaven is that, it is, is that prayer is about relationship with God. That the great God of the universe says, I love you and I want to have an intimate relationship with you. And ultimately, that's the greatest end of prayer. That we come to know God so intimately that our hearts are interwoven together with his. Because he is a personal God who loves us and cares for us and desires relationship with us. When you read the Old Testament, Gerald Jansen says that in his book, At the Scent of Water, that that despite what we see sometimes in the scriptures, he talks about God's default interaction with human beings. He's using that term default like we would for a computer. You know, the default settings on a computer, that's what the factory settings it comes with. And if you want to change those, you're opening up a, a Word document to, to write something, and you want the margins different or the font different, you change it. And, then, and the next time you open up a different new document, it's going to go back to those default settings. If your computer crashes and you have to reload your software, it goes back to your default settings. 
It's how it came from the factory. And he says, despite some of the things that we see of God in the scriptures, God's default setting is personal relationship with his people. In the passage from from, uh, Psalm 89, we read a few moments ago, what is God saying to people? Though you've sinned, I'll be faithful. Though you've turned away from me, I'm right here. Though you've disregarded me, I'm not going to disregard you. Faithfulness of a personal God. And that is the ultimate end of our prayers when we understand God as Father. Because when you come and you throw yourself at the mercy of God because of your sin, it's our loving Father who runs and embraces you and welcomes you home and restores you and throws a party for you. It's our Father who wants to give himself to us. You remember when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, he said that the work of the Holy Spirit was to remind us of truth, to convict us of sin, to be the presence of God in our lives, and to fill us with the fruit that looks like Jesus, of peace, joy, love, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I suspect that there's times in our lives when we sort of hold the Holy Spirit at arm's length because we're not really interested in being convicted of sin. We're not really sure if the Holy Spirit gets close and in us and is invigorating us and is filling us and it wants to transform us. What's that, what's that going to mean for us? It's probably going to mean we have to make some sacrifices and we have to make some changes and we have to give up some things. And we have to be confronted about some things. And we don't want to do that. And why don't we want to do that? Because we are convinced that the changes that God wants to make are really good for us. And why aren't we convinced that the changes God wants to make are really good for us? Because we don't yet believe that God, our Father, truly delights in giving good to us and in having relationship with us. It keeps coming back to our Father who art in heaven. I suspect that we probably have become a little bit numb to that concept of God as Father. We hear it. We we use it in our prayers. But do we really believe what it means? Sometimes hearing the story of people who don't have that concept of God helps us. I was reading just recently a story that Dennis Kendall told of hearing a woman from Pakistan tell about her, her journey to Christ. Her husband was a longtime member of Pakistani government. And she was a Muslim. And one day she got her hands on the New Testament and she began to read the New Testament and she could not believe that in the New Testament it actually said to people that God said, you call me Father. She couldn't believe that. She thought about her her own upbringing and teachings about God. It was not his father. 
Allah was not was greater than human beings. You would never use that kind of, of human language to describe him. She said when she finally came to faith in Christ, the first thing she did was to look up into the sky and say, Father. And she said immediately she fell to the ground certain that God was going to strike her dead for being so insolent toward him. And as she, as she lay there on the ground, she heard one word. There's one word. Daughter. Daughter. And she said, I just began to weep uncontrollably, thinking that God is my father. And to you and to me, our Father in heaven is saying, Son, daughter. It's at the heart of of what it means to pray and to be people who pray. And I believe that if we're going to be people who truly pray, it begins with an understanding of God as Father who loves to do good for us who loves to pour out his blessings upon us, who wants personal relationship, intimacy with us. Heavenly Father, help us to understand who you are Give us a clearer vision of our Father who art in heaven. Let us hear those words, son, daughter, my children.